Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Bank of Ireland is looking out for your financial well-being. They want to help protect you from fraud. So whether it's Black Friday, Cyber Monday, or even just plain old Tuesday, be careful online. Don't assume that every text message or email you get claiming to be from a bank, a delivery service, or any company is legit. And remember, Bank of Ireland will never send you a text message or an email with a link asking for your full 365 PIN number or one-time passcodes, so don't give them out. Search Bank of Ireland Security, and together this Christmas we won't let the fraudsters win. Begin. Bank of Ireland is regulated by the Central Bank of Ireland. Hello everybody and welcome to another Rugby Life interview. Uh, This week we're talking to Ben Jeffries. Ben's the Chief Executive of Pontypool RFC, one of the legendary clubs of not just Wales, but world rugby, I suppose. Uh, he's a son of a local businessman. He became involved in the club at the beginning of the last decade, um, I think, but we'll, we'll clarify that as we go through. Very much a public face of one part of the ever controversial area that we like to call Welsh community rugby. Uh, he's been outspoken in his views about its future, its relationship with the WRU, and the part rugby should play in, in the communities in Wales moving forward. Ben's also perhaps equally well-known for his long-running journey with his mental health, which we'll we'll talk about today. In 2014, Ben said, uh, There is a pressure growing up in today's world to conform to a particular mould, but I have been at my happiest in life since being myself and doing things in my own way. Welcome, Ben, first of all, and thanks for for coming along and and, and, allotting some time in your busy schedule, I imagine, to do this. Oh, no, it's great to be with you. Thanks, Lee. Uh, That... Quote is interesting. How much do you how much do you still feel you are doing things your own way? That's a good question, really. It's uh, been a few years since I said that. Um, yeah, I think it's uh, to be totally honest. I think I, I still had a, a was that 2014? You said yeah. It was an interview when you were when you were. I think you were the marketing director or something at Pontypool then. I think. Yeah. Uh, I, to be honest, I think I probably still had a fair bit of naivety about uh, what I was going through regarding my mental health because, uh, you know, since then I've had a, a lot of ups and downs, uh, some pretty big downs lately. And, and I think I'm gradually getting to the point where I'm learning, but it's it's a lifelong process. And, uh, you know, I, I, I feel like I've learned the hard way, but just when you feel you've cracked it and, and you're, you're good to go uh, moving forward, uh, there's always peaks and troughs and uh, but yeah, you know, obviously it's um, I, I've, I've had my struggles uh, with my own mental health and, and how I feel about myself a lot over the years. And uh, I, I think in one sense, because it's probably fair to say, but there's a there's perhaps a perception of me of, of coming from a, a pretty privileged background and mm. 
not having your conventional uh, things to worry about, so to speak. But um, that's actually attached a lot of guilt to me over the years. So I think it's probably what I meant by that comment at the time. And uh, yeah, but obviously I'm, I'm still learning uh, how to manage <laughs> today, yeah. really. So, so what so you say you learn how to manage today? What are you up to now? I know you've launched a website recently, haven't you? About about being quite open about your mental health stuff. So, what else are you up to as well as that? I'll tell people about yeah. that as well. Yeah, I mean, it's it's something I've done predominantly to aid my own recovery. I think because uh, I I got into a, quite a dark place uh, a few months ago, and and I've been trying to sort of work through that on my own and. Uh, ended up uh, back in, in hospital as a result of it. So I think it's just an outlet for me to sort of uh, put my, my feelings down on paper, so to speak. And uh, I, I was quite surprised by how much um, the, the initial blog post sort of resonated with a lot of people and uh, had several thousand people read that and, and lots of comments have come my way. And, and I think it's just a nice reminder that, uh, you know, it, it's a it's a big struggle for a lot of people, and and the only way we can move forward is have that open and honest discussion. Because there's there's plenty of people out there who still think it's a, a fabrication to suffer with mental health problems, and and the impact that can have on people is uh, is potentially devastating. So, uh, yeah, so I, that, that's something I've just done from a personal point of view, but obviously still trying to navigate Pondy Pool through this uh, COVID crisis, which has proven to be a challenge. But obviously, that's the case for everyone, and. Um, and when I'm not doing those things, I'm trying to work on my golf game, but I, I don't know which is worse at the minute, the blog, the, the golf, or, or the club, because uh, I, I'm an embarrassment to the game, to be quite honest with you. I used to play golf quite a bit, and I stopped many years ago. Not for any reason, I just kind of drifted away from it. I play guitar a lot, and, and I often equate guitar to being like golf, no matter how long I've been playing it for. There are some days I pick it up and go, I am absolutely shit at it. <laughs> how, how am I shit at this again today when I felt like I was all right again with it last week? And golf, yeah. that's one of the reasons why I keep shying away from golf. I mean, so, so, I mean, golf's not very good for your self-worth, I must say, not to make too much of a joke about it. But, I mean, in all seriousness, you can have a frustrating day out there, can't you? Yeah, uh, and, and to be totally transparent, I smashed my three-wood into about a 1,000 pieces <laughs> last week after six rounds of complete, you can't even call it mediocrity, it's just <laughs> dire golf. Uh, so um, that was a bit of a mistake. But uh, luckily, there's a good used club market on eBay, which I, uh, I took advantage of. So... <laughs> Yeah, but uh, but there we go. So you talked about Pontypool there, um, and this is called a rugby life, and we'll come out Pontypool. So I think you became involved in Pontypool in about 2012. You can correct me if that's wrong in a bit, but I suppose my question is, where did where did your rugby life start? <laughs> uh, well, it started on on the day I started at Pontypool. To be quite honest right. with you, uh, I had I had no plan to uh, get involved in rugby. Uh, uh, hate to admit it now but I, I was a football man growing up um, a big Arsenal fan and and followed that religiously uh, but my dad uh, had been quite successful in business and um, was was contemplating uh, you know moving into retirement at, uh, at that stage and uh, he was a lifelong or still is a lifelong Pontypool supporter and obviously the club hit some dire financial straits through its high court case with the WIU, which the, the previous directors and shareholders decided was a, a good idea to, to, to fight the WIU. Uh, and they obviously lost and came off second best with can that. You, can you talk and, some more about that? Because not everybody listening will know what that high court case was about. I'm sure yeah, you don't want to sure. go back over that too much, which is we'll just give a bit of a context <laughs> about what that is. Yeah, so in short, uh, the Welsh Rugby Union 
uh, in their uh, eternal wisdom decided that they would restructure the premiership division uh, yet again and they shrunk it uh, to a 12-team league and uh, they effectively demoted Pontypool to the newly formed national championship and uh, this this was despite the club not being in the relegation drop zone uh, they hadn't had a great season but they hadn't had a terrible season either and it was done on a whole algorithm of six seasons worth of performance and another parameters to do with facilities in line with the a license which they launched which was uh, a sort of a, a checkpoint for for criteria for being a premiership club uh, i do love so the that, idea that wru were world leaders in erroneous algorithms though i mean they're not using world <laughs> leaders in many things are they but that's uh, I, <laughs> that, I that's quite still, impressive <laughs> i'm still trying to wrap my head around the algorithm they come up with because it was just farcical really uh, and and you know in doing so uh, it, it caused all sorts of a stir with uh, regions wanting a, a certain allotment of clubs in their region in the premiership and uh, pondy pool uh, obviously has a pretty checkered history of having friends outside of uh, its own postcode and i think it, it felt the effects of that to be honest and it was sort of left high and dry which was a, a devastating blow financially for the club um and as I say, the, uh, the the previous shareholders decided that they'd launch a, a fighting fund, and, and it went all the way to the High Court. Um, quite a famous court case in which uh, Roger Lewis, as it was back then, uh, was was pretty uh, vociferous in defending the WIU's corner. Uh, but the the, the previous uh, lot, they effectively gambled all of the club's uh, money, everything that it had, uh, in the hope it would win, and it lost. So the club was insolvent and was facing being totally wound up and, and kicked out of the league structure altogether. And uh, that's where my dad and a, a few other people got involved. And uh, he, here we are nearly 10 years <laughs> later, still trying to get back to the premiership. So it's been a strange journey. I, I, I read something, I think you, you you seem to have been quite upfront as a public face, almost from the off, really, from 2012 it seems, looking back on when you research this a bit, not that I've been spending hours on this, but it's not hard to find you popping up over the past eight years in relation to Ponzi Pool. And one of the things that you did back then was, obviously you mentioned they weren't in the premiership anymore. And one of the things that you set out very clearly back in sort of 2012-13 publicly was that you want to get back into the premiership and all that kind of stuff. I suppose a couple of parts of this, how hard was it to build that pathway with an insolvent club. And then the other point I'm interested in is given your mental health issues and you mentioned OCD in, in your history as well, how much of an effect does goal setting like that and then the worry that might create in not reaching them affect you personally? Well, they're two very, very good questions. Now, to answer the second one first, uh, in my case, I found it to be a relief setting goals which were a bit more concrete uh, professionally, because to be totally honest with you, I, I had graduated from university with uh, a degree uh, and then I did a master's degree to pass more time and avoid <laughs> um, avoid facing up to a career. And uh, throughout that time, I was just ravaged by OCD. I was housebound. I, I couldn't even make a meal uh, on my own. Uh, my wife had to prepare everything. I was in a terrible, terrible place. I, I, I was so... Uh, concerned with hygiene and, and catching stomach bugs or whatever it were, but I couldn't stop washing my hands, brushing my teeth, getting changed, and all this stuff. It, it was it was ter- uh, just absolutely terrible uh, to to live with. But uh, with the club, though, I, I I got involved in it because obviously my dad took the decision to 
uh, take on the club. Uh, but within weeks of doing so, he suffered a stroke and he'd taken on this huge, <laughs> effectively insolvent project and he was in no position to run it. So I came in by pure chance as someone who was on his knees, quite frankly, in terms of his mental and physical state and, and was just desperate for an outlet, something to, to try and do, uh, to be productive in. So setting those objectives and, and uh, you know, knowing what we needed to do to get the club successful or, or what we thought back then was quite positive. But I was someone who had no experience in business. I had no experience of running a team, managing a team, leading a team. And all of a sudden I was thrust into this quite public facing role, which I didn't even realize at the time. I'd, I'd watched Pontypool play probably twice <laughs> before I'd, I'd been there. I had no idea of its history and its resonance uh, even today. So I was quite ignorant to what I was walking into. And I think at the time it was probably to my benefit because I think that's what stopped me from getting uh, overwhelmed. Um, and I suppose that dovetails to your first question really about uh, you know trying to chart our way back obviously we're still in the championship and I think it's fair to say that, that me certainly not even knowing what I was walking into but my dad also I think we grossly underestimated the challenge um, and, and obviously you know Welsh Club Rugby has a reputation as being a bit downtrodden I think but all the core ingredients you need to be successful still apply so you need a, a good ethos you need a good team spirit you need a structure uh, and it's t it took us about five years, quite honestly, to, to really get that embedded. Uh, you know, I, I learned some very harsh lessons trusting some people who now I would never trust uh, with, with being involved with the team. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of bad people with their own agenda like there is in any walk of life. And unfortunately, you've got to go through the pain of of learning that the hard way. And uh, but you've now got a very settled team and a, a, a very good environment, I'd say. So it's uh We've learned some hard lessons, but we're in a much better. How are, you mentioned you didn't, you know, you weren't really paying much attention to rugby at all until you were thrust into it, which is, well, I suppose any, I think anybody listening will think what well, you grew up, where you grew up and you didn't really know. I think they'll be surprised <laughs> about, by that. I'm certainly surprised by it. But so you came in and, um, and, and you came, I suppose my question is, is not carrying all that baggage in, all that, well, the region should never have been created and, you know, this community, you know, the, the, this should still be a professional club and we've all been destroyed by it all and stuff and not carrying that sort of cultural baggage in. How much did that help or not, I suppose? Well, it's uh, it's funny. You you mentioned uh, a moment ago that I, I've been quite out there from from the outset. And, uh, you know, we had, we had two challenges, effectively. When we first got there, we had to stabilise our own house and get that in order. And, and, you know, we did that over a period of time. Uh, but the more I got involved in the game, the more I started to get quite agitated by the sheer lack of structure to it and, and the lack of investment and uh, the lack of uh, strategic focus, really. And, and, you know, here we were trying to move Pontypool forward into a, a more professional outfit. But the world we were operating in, I felt, was just an absolute farce. You know, we, we had no media arm from the Welsh Rugby Union at the time. We had to to fight for any sort of PR and, you know, that's something uh, we've tried to do ourselves over the years. Uh, so I, I got more annoyed by it. So all of a sudden I found myself taking a stand on certain things and uh, putting my opinion out there on certain things and probably to my detriment, if I'm honest, and to the club's detriment. But I, I just felt like we could be so much better than, than we were. And, uh, you know, being quite young as it were and uh, trying to, 
to I suppose gain some confidence in what I was doing I, I sort of it sort of gave me a bit of a, a lift to go out there and try and do it really but uh, I've learned after many years of, of trying to do that but uh, there's only so much you can control and, and Welsh rugby I think will always be quite a, a strange place and I think we're, we're limited on what we can do and we've sort of turned our focus far more inward now on, on our own house and I think we're probably seeing the, the results of that as well. I suppose you were let, that was assisted and facilitated by the fact that WIU effectively came out, didn't they? I can't remember how long it was ago, ago now and said, you just run your own club now. You don't have to focus on developing players for professional teams beyond if there's a talented lad there, they'll find it, they'll find him or her. You know, so I think there's, so, so did, did that help, I suppose? It seems to have helped. I remember your comments at the time saying, now I know what my focus is. Yeah, I, I think we've uh, the, the big issue we've had in recent years has been, um, and to touch on your point from a moment ago as well, you know, a lot of our supporters feel very alienated uh, for a multitude of reasons. The court case being one, but the concept of the Dragons, how it was formed, a mixture of Evervale and Newport and, uh, you know, Gwent, the Valleys being lost in all of that, I, I suppose. Um, but the problem we've had, I, I think, is because we've been effectively told previously that we're a development pathway and that's our purpose, it sort of cheapened, I, I felt, the mm. uh, allure and appeal of our leagues because at the end of the day, our supporters don't care about developing your next Welsh international. They care about winning the league. And, and believe you me, when we don't achieve <laughs> that, we, we know all about it. So we, we know what our supporters want. Um, and I actually think where the, the WIU have gone with it with... Uh, this A-team structure and removing that pathway from us is really positive because already in the last year, by dropping ring fencing and uh, and bringing promotion back, we were seeing uh, bigger crowds than we'd ever had previously. Uh, you know, there was a few headline games where we had close to 2,000 people at Pontypool Park, which in this day and age is is huge. So uh, I think it shows the, the, the direction we need to go. And, and unfortunately, uh, this, this COVID situation has put a huge dent in that. Um, when we were just finally starting to make a, a fair bit of progress. You mentioned before that you're a, with your OCD and germophobia and you've not been very well. I mean, you know, even the back end of last year, you were in hospital, weren't you? And it's only since you've come mm. out, you've, you know, give, given your public face on the mental health another push. How how does somebody, I work in, adult, you know, people are listening, I work in adult social care as a living and I know for a fact that some of our service users who have mental health issues uh, uh, particularly with paranoia are becoming really affected by this you know it, it is something it's going to be a developing storm I suppose I'm not trying to I'm not trying to you know <laughs> put the fear into it but what I'm saying I suppose my oh, question I was thinking is thinking about that before but, you know, but, but I suppose some germ of you know it's a long question this but I suppose how is it affecting you given the way that it sounds like your brain treats infection anyway yeah it's uh you know all jokes aside it, it's a challenge and uh you know, I, I, I've certainly felt the traits from a few years ago creeping back in uh, in recent months. You know, the hand washing and, uh, you know, every time I leave the house and if I take my phone or something, I'm wiping it down when I get back and door handles and all this stuff and trying to be careful. But, uh, yeah, I, I think it's uh, I think it's just it's quite terrifying for those who are particularly vulnerable. And, and you know, my wife has suffered uh, with endometriosis for a number of years. So she's wow. she falls into that category which should be shielding and uh, I, I think that's what's making me probably more anxious at the moment is is making sure I take every precaution uh, 
to to lower the risk of her catching it. And and that's to be honest, that's what happened to me uh, when I was really struggling uh, about ten years ago when when she first got ill. Um, she was very seriously unwell as it was at the time, and and um, you know it was looking like we were possibly going to lose her at one stage. And and that's where my hygiene issues really took over. So yeah, there's certainly a pattern I think with what's going on at the moment and what I was experiencing back then. Uh, but I, I've got friends who are typically not, um, I wouldn't say they're unhygienic, but they're normal, I suppose, in terms of their outlook on, on hygiene and, uh, you know, prep, preparing food and handling food. And, and even they're starting to think twice and get particularly anxious about it. So I would agree with you there. It's, uh, I think the mental health impact of this uh, pandemic is, is not something we're truly seeing the, the impact of right now. But I think the longer this goes on and, and you combine that with the, the, the devastating economic impacts, which we're clearly going to encounter soon. I, I really do fear for the, uh, you, you know, the prospects of people's mental health moving forward. We'll probably keep jumping in between rugby and mental health as it kind of props up. But I suppose you mentioned devastating economic impacts. Um, and obviously you run a club, which I imagine, well, I suppose a couple of questions. How hard is it to remain solvent normally um, as, a, as a club at this level in, a, in the Welsh League? And how hard is it going to be to remain solvent moving forward? I know you can't give away your strategic plans or anything like that, but, you know, just try and help people to understand that, I suppose. Well, you know, we, we've never shied away from the fact that, uh, you know, Pondypool is propped up by my dad's uh, net worth, so to speak. Uh, you know, and we're very fortunate for that because uh, without that uh, cash injection, we wouldn't be able to do what we're doing uh, now and, and in the past in terms of the growth of our squad and, and some of the things we're looking to do with our venue, such as uh, redeveloping Pondypool Park. So we're, we're stable in the sense of, you know, we're, we're not uh, it, it risking insolvency. However, uh, there are challenges uh, for us. Uh, all of our gate receipts and income stopped overnight. And uh, we project a certain amount of money, which, quite frankly, uh, my father has to inject into the club to keep it in a, a healthy position. And all of our forecasting and all of our planning and budgeting has just gone totally out the window at the moment. Uh, all of our sponsorship has been deferred at least until 2021 because many of our commercial partners who, who are aligned to my father's business interests have obviously uh, had their own issues mm. at the moment. So we've got zero income. And my job really over the last few months has just been to, to strip out as much expenditure as, as possible uh, to, to effectively mothball the club for when we can get going again. So, uh, but, but in a normal climate, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's impossible to run a championship club on the funding that's provided by the WIU. Uh, there's not really much else you can do other than generate your own income through season tickets, match day tickets and sponsorship. Uh, there's a big gulf between the premiership funding and the championship funding. And, and I'll be really interested to see in the months ahead with this pandemic, whether the WIU are going to move to a, a more strategic focus to to make everything below the premiership amateur, which I know has been a long held ambition of theirs. So I think there's a big discussion at the moment about the, the global calendar. And, and I think really, even down to our level, it's something we need to think about seriously about the future because, uh, yeah, there's going to be some huge economic impacts in Welsh club rugby and uh, even, well, obviously at the premiership, uh, sorry, the professional level, it's even, the stakes are even greater. So it's, uh, there's so much uncertainty, it's just impossible to forecast and plan. So is it semi-pro at your level? Or do you pay, do Pontypool and clubs at that, in that league pay players? Uh, yeah, so effectively, 
um, there are th- this A license, which I've referred to before, is is to be a Premiership team, you need this A license, which uh, is a certain um, series of, of requirements in terms of facilities, uh, business structure, uh, medical criteria, etc. And uh, all the Premiership teams have it, and I believe there's five, four or five of us in the Championship which have it. And, and the WIU's position is. Uh, anyone who doesn't have that A license shouldn't be paying players. So we are a club which is uh, semi-professional and we pay our players. And uh, obviously, you know, we're not a brown envelope operation mm. and, and we've been able to utilize some of the, the HMRC uh, COVID schemes to ensure that our players were looked after because a lot of our players have, um, you know, jobs on building sites yeah, or whatever yeah. it may be. And, and, and all of their income has been jeopardized as well. So, uh, we've we've done the best we can to provide some stability, but I think we're we're coming to that cliff edge point uh, when that scheme ends uh, over the next few months. Uh, what we do as a club, and, and I'm sure that's a discussion that many businesses are having at this time as well. Acast recommends podcasts we love. Changemakers is a new podcast series with me, Claire McKenna, talking to people who stand up, speak out or challenge us to think a little differently. It's about the greater good, families and children respecting their own individuality. In the next couple of years, like I hope I never have to have conversations about racism ever again. Like, I just want to get to the stage where, you know, people are just people. Nobody's pooling the resources together and actually being able to show how much of an impact it will make when people do come together. Changemakers with Claire McKenna. Search for it now wherever you get your podcasts. Acast is home to the world's best podcasts, including the David McWilliams podcast, I'm Grandmam, and the one you're listening to right now. So jumping back to you, Karen, you mentioned that you've, you know, you, you've always been quite prominent, literally, you, you know, your your face is, is very prominent right from 2012 and that you made some mistakes back then. However, re- reflecting back to you, I mean, obviously you seem as prominent now as you were then. And you said you'd learned some lessons. So so is it lessons about how you express yourself when you are going out in public or is or because it's, or, or have you cut back the amount of kind of public stuff you're doing? How have the yeah, lessons I, learned impacted? I think... Uh... To be, to be quite frank about it, I was like a bull in a china shop when I started. <laughs> uh, I, I didn't care who I offended. I didn't care what uh, people thought about my views. Uh, I had my opinion. And, and if I saw an injustice, as it were, in, in Welsh rugby or, or whatever it may be, I was going to call it out. And, and uh, you know, I sort of put myself front and centre uh, in, in the whole trying to get the the WIU board turfed out um, when David Moffat came back. And uh, I think I was one of four people who put their hands up to, to vote for, for that at the um, emergency general meeting and, and just felt an immediate sense of uh, oh, <laughs> loneliness. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, but, you know, as I've got a bit older, I, I just, I think I quite honestly tried to mature a bit and realize that there's, there's more way, more than one way to skin a cat. And, uh, it's in nobody's interest to uh, effectively go out of your way to to leave a trail of destruction, if I'm honest. And I think some of my behavior in my early days was was a bit unhinged and a bit unpolished. And, you know, albeit I think I was fighting some noble causes, if, if you can't do that in the most productive way, then you, you're probably a hindrance to those uh, the, the solutions you're trying to find. So um, I think these days I've just picked A, picking my battles, 
for things like an influence, uh, you know, at a, at a grassroots level here, but also just trying to be a bit more positive. And I think that's where the mental health stuff has come in. Mm. Um, trying to have some open and engaging conversations with people about that. And um, instead, rather than having a pop at the WIU or the, the injustices of Welsh rugby, I'm sort of calling out people who are trolling people for having depression or anxiety because, you know, it's that sort of trolling, which is really devastating to some people. And uh, so, yeah, I think the lessons I've learned have just been, you know, the, to, to be a bit more mature, be, be a bit more methodical, uh, whether I am or not, I don't know. Uh, you'll have to tell me, but, uh, um, but it's a, it's a, it's a lifelong process, maturing, I suppose. And uh, I've certainly learned uh, some lessons along the way. I think what you find is that your partners don't go away, do they? And they all are. Everyone in it is your partner, one way or another, aren't they? With WRU, yeah. with the clubs, you got it. And in any in any walk of life you work in, it's exactly the same. There are people that completely do your head in, but they're not going to yeah. go anywhere. And also, the, exactly. the really annoying thing is that people that you think you you get really fed up with sometimes have something sensible to say, and if you yeah. stop listening, then that's lost, that's isn't it? And it's and it must be particularly difficult when it gets so vociferous, as it can do in Welsh rugby, you know. Yeah, precisely. And and I'll be honest as well. I think, uh, you know, if we're reflecting on my own behavior over the years, I, I, I don't think I fully appreciated everybody else's point of view on things. I came in, didn't know the history of the game, mm. saw some issues I felt needed some some pretty quick uh, attention. And, and that was my focus. And, and if anyone else was in the way, you know, they were a blazer or uh, you know, they were a block of the change. And, and like you say, over time, the more you the more you alienate yourself from people, the more, A, you don't listen to other people's views, but B, the less they listen to your views. And I think, I would certainly hope anyway, over the last couple of years with some of the changes that WIU have made, uh, I've been more proactive in having the right conversations at the right levels rather than tweeting something or, or you know, getting some column inches in a newspaper because it's, well, it's not always appropriate. So, um, you know, I've, I've only just ended my thirties and, uh, you know, I was probably a bit too young and a bit too boisterous to take on the, the role I, I did take on. Um, and I made some pretty big mistakes along the way, but, uh, I, I, I mean, genuinely you're 20, you were 22, Ben. Uh, yeah, it was- <laughs> doing a quick maths in my head. You were 22 with an admittedly not much background in this world. I don't know anybody who wouldn't have come in and made a, a shitload of mistakes and done some yeah. good stuff as well. I think there's there's something to be said for taking it on, especially in the midst of, as you said, your dad being very unwell and and everything else you had going on. Interestingly, when that interview from 2014 that I took the quote from before, you were being quite open about your OCD even then. And this is in the midst of you, as you say, being quite vociferously vocal about things you didn't like and, and still in that kind of learning phase. Help me, help me, and people listen. Explain your kind of thought process on being that open, and or was it a thought process, and what that might open you up to? It's, again, it's a good question. I, I, uh, I, I've struggled with this since I was a child, and I can look back on things throughout my childhood, which I, I thought were just what everyone else did, whether it be OCD, which was really the, the first issue I had uh, growing up. Uh, and I'd spent so long and so many years, right up until I, I got into my early 20s, hiding away other than my wife and to some extent my parents, but not a great deal. Nobody knew I was going through what I was going through. And uh, I don't know, really. I just sort of felt uh, 
compelled at some point. I started getting some some therapy and treatment, and uh, I think at one point I just decided to put it out there. And uh, I, I don't really know what my objective was. It just I just felt like it, it was for me something I needed to do. And uh, you know, I, I just don't consider myself to be uh, any sort of a, a, a recognizable face. So when I put it out there, I was expecting nothing. And and the response I had even then a few years ago was, was it, it was, you know, I, I, I hadn't cried for many years. Like I, I just blocked so much away, but mm. all that positivity and support, it just completely overwhelmed me. And uh, it was at that moment where I realized, you know, there's a lot of this out there and uh, I've sort of, made it a, a regular thing of mine ever since to just uh, keep talking about it and uh, and I think to be honest that's one of the areas I sort of fell down in recent months when I ended back up in hospital because I'd stopped talking and it's only through doing this blog and speaking out a little bit again hmm. uh, but but I realized that actually those people haven't gone away uh, you just have to engage in those conversations so um, are you winning any of those battles um it's a difficult one because I, I I'm certainly better than I was uh, much better because I think it was March uh, when I went back to hospital I I was done I was done I I, I specifically meant the battles you're having with uh, with discussing with people to try and change their mind that's what I was meant oh, I, sorry, I, I don't me. I don't like to describe a, a mental health thing as a battle I find it's not helpful language if you like but it's a but yeah. but yeah please do carry on I just wanted to to check that I wasn't I, didn't, I wasn't using the wrong you know making you ask, answer a question that's a bit unfair perhaps but no 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 I, that, to be honest i think it's a it's a fair question but uh but no it, you know to, to answer your question i i don't think we'll ever win that battle and that's a depressing thing to say uh, pardon the, the the pun but uh you know you, you'll always have people who are just so ignorant and for some reason seem to want to go out of their way to try and make someone else miserable and that's the worst part of social media and it, and and that ability to give people a platform where they they will not say it to your face uh, and there's a, there's a there's a fan of uh, cross keys who i won't name but everybody who knows me will know him who has just for years been abusing me about depression my family uh, me as a person uh and I confronted him at our game in December and said, how about we step outside and have a chat? Wouldn't do it because mm. there's something about this, the, the, the security of a keyboard, which these people find uh, quite empowering. And, um, you know, I got no problem with confronting people who, who, who act so inappropriately and, and take liberties with people's mental health. It's, um, it's something that's never really bothered me, but it, it frustrates me because it's, it's the number one barrier to people getting healthy and, that's something we really have to change uh, in a big way moving forward. I um I ask you this. I'll give you some context before I ask you this question. My um I I've not had mental health problems, but my mum is a lifelong sufferer with clinical depression, and she uh, voluntarily hospitalised herself just over a decade ago. And uh, and your description in your blog purchase, uh, your blog post about what these places are like, they're like the most depressing sort of two star hotel you've ever been in. You know, and that you go, if, if you if you felt depressed before you went in, and this isn't a joke, when you go in and see the, and I could, it was a unit in North Wales, my mum was in, you know, and the bed screwed to the floor, and it, every, the whole environment suggests how you should feel about yourself. I can't speak for the one you went in, but certainly that bit about mesh and everything taken away from you and things screwed down and stuff. And anyway, my mum is 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 a ballsy, uh, funny, 
Lancashire woman, right? And when she was in there, she was not a person I recognised anymore. She she wasn't the person that I knew as my mum. She felt yeah. completely unloved. I don't, I don't she believe that I loved her at that point. That's how bad it was, you know, and it's been a very, very long journey back from her. Now, the reason why I give you that context is one to, to, to be very clear. I'm not one of these people who thinks that somehow something shouldn't mean you have mental health problems or how happy you are or anything like that or whatever your bloody economic background is. That's all total and utter bollocks. So anybody who is listening might think that. Please, please have a think. But um, I'm asking because obviously you mentioned right at the top about it being a lifelong thing and you've been through some therapy. What my mum learned to do was was to accept it's part of who she is now and she has to live with it. And so therefore, I remember phoning her once. We used to work for the same uh, county, believe it or not. And I phoned her once and said, I'm going to come for lunch. I'll be there about 20 past one. She said, no, I can't go then. I said, why? She said, I'll go lunch at half one. And I kind of rolled my eyes a bit. But then I remembered that that's how she was quite close to a recovery period, still in the middle of it. So that's how she managed the day. She has routines. She's vociferate. She's really, really um, um, obsessed with her sleep patterns and all that kind of stuff because that's how she stays well. Otherwise, she'll be in hospital and not working and all that kind of stuff. Now, I suppose my question is, is is, is how much of your the the behaviours that are affected, that are caused by you, driven by your conditions, do you accept as part of you now or something that you're still fighting with? I think that's an excellent point. And, and that's something I've really, really wrestled with, uh, over the years because, uh, yeah. And, and, you know, we've, we've just spoken about sort of how I behaved in the past and, and how bolshy I was about things, but, you know, on the surface that would appear and, and, and with good reason, I would say based on, on what people would probably think of me as someone who's quite entitled, uh, privileged, you know, has no consequences for their actions, not bothered about what they say, doesn't care what anyone thinks about them. But what I've identified over the years is I was acting that way to counterbalance the sheer lack of control I felt I had in my private and personal life. And, you know, on one side of the coin, uh, there was me and this public persona who would take on the, the top brass of the WIU or, you know, battle for what I believed in. But on the other side of the coin, when that person went home uh, or, or never even left his home, was someone who absolutely hated himself, uh, had zero self-confidence, zero self-belief, uh, despite the fact that I've obviously got this this very good position, which I'm fortunate to be in and... and you know, I've been very fortunate over the years to have had some uh, some tremendous experiences in my life. Despite it all, I had zero sense of happiness or contentment or fulfillment. You know, I got a great wife. Uh, you know, anything that your average twenty year old would want, I could have had, and none of it made me feel good, happy, or, or positive about myself. And what I've really tried to to figure out in recent years, and I think that sort of explains what I was talking about a moment ago about trying to change was no matter how much of a hard ass I appear in public and someone who doesn't get crossed by anybody and you know a hard business-minded person it doesn't matter really because if that's not who you are uh, and that's not what you're about it's pointless acting and chasing something but isn't you and where I've tried to go back a few steps is you know what I don't need to be that person. I'm someone who's trying to work something out, who I am, what drives me. Um, 
you know, there's a reason for why I've been so unhappy over over the last few years. And it's been a case of identifying what that is. And I, and I think I'm getting somewhere with it now. Um, but, but you mentioned about routine and structure and everything. And, and I'm finding that if I lose my routine, everything else falls down. And that, that's probably the biggest challenge I've got right now in terms of trying to stay healthy is, you know, there's not much to get up for at the moment. And it, does it matter if you go to bed quite late? You know, there's lots of food in your fridge. Uh, who cares if you eat all of it today? You know, it's it's that sort of attitude. And, and when you let one or two things fall away, that's when your motivation for everything else falls away. Um, so it's sort of like a, it's two strands for me. There's the part about who I am and, and trying to find some contentment with that. But there's also the functional part, uh, which I think touches on what you were saying, where what do you have to do day to day to give you the best chance to be in a good place to focus on the rest of it? So it doesn't take much for the whole lot to fall down. And I think that's the that's the bit which still scares me to this day, if I'm honest. And um, so in terms of things like therapy, that that is on, if you don't, you know, obviously you, can do answer, you don't have to answer any question you don't want to answer, but is your therapy ongoing? And do you see that being as something that will be ongoing for a very long time? Yeah, I, I to be honest, I, I was planning on being in the, in the Priory for a month uh, in March, uh, but there was... Uh, there was some issues with COVID in the hospital as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I was quite keen to, to get out of there. Um, so I have got another two weeks, of, which will be done as a day patient now, uh, waiting for me, which is largely group therapy, which I was quite uh, reluctant to participate in at first. But it's uh, it, that, that of everything that surprised me the most of just how empowering that can be to be around like-minded people who are going through the same thing. Uh, so I'm looking forward to getting that uh, going again in, in due course. But yeah, I, I'm still having one-to-one uh, sessions with my therapist uh, via uh, Skype or whatever it may be. And and I think that's something I'm going to have to have for a, for a long time because even though I've sort of got some of my equilibrium back, this is far from the finished article. And uh, I, I readily accept there's still a lot that I've got to work on in the in the months ahead. You mentioned the term looking forward there. Um, how how easy is it for you to look forward, both for yourself and for the club? Uh, it's it's difficult because, uh, you know, it's, this is not really something I've talked about too much publicly before. But uh, I I really massively struggle with my myself and uh, my purpose and my abilities. To be honest with you, and uh, I I always have this sort of fear that. I, I I don't know enough to, to deal with a situation or I'm not going to deal with something in the right way. And I think what we've got at the moment where for now, everything's just stopped. You know, there's not much more I got, or anybody else can do it at the rugby club. We're, we're at the mercy of uh, the Welsh government, the future of this, this pandemic and, and the WIU in, in what they decide to do. Uh, but the, the problem I've got at the moment is this, this lull uh, is giving me far too much time to think and I do better when I don't have too much time to think and, and you do things sort of second nature. Uh, so this is a huge challenge for me personally, but in terms of the club, I, I think, uh, you know, we, we, we have uh, prepared as best as we can for next season, whenever it starts. So we've continued with recruitment to some extent, uh, trying to keep things stable and keep our supporters informed. So, so when we can move forward, uh, we're in a good position to, to go again. I think that's probably a good time to finish it off, Ben. Um, thank you very much. Incredibly no, powerful stuff. Incredibly honest. 
Um, I suppose my last question is: is do you do you do you still have feelings of regret for opening up as much as you do? I think it's fantastic. I think I think more people in leadership positions like yourself need to do stuff like this, and I, and so people can start to understand that it is real, and you can still actually do a job, but it's hard bloody work. You know, Alistair, Alistair Campbell always talks about with his his problems. He says, "Yeah, I'm okay now, but people never mention that I run marathons and I run this, you know, and I do all this stuff and I don't drink anymore and and all that kind of stuff." Um, so I think it's amazing. So I suppose the last thing is, is that how comfortable are you now with with the position you've given yourself? I'm totally at ease with speaking out, and I'm totally at ease with. Uh, being somewhat of an open book with, with this this kind of thing, uh, I think to touch on my my earlier point, really, I spent so many years uh, giving a, a, an impression of me that just was so way off, so left field, uh, which was just not in any way aligned to to the reality of of who I am. And the more you do that, the more you build a pressure within yourself to live up to it. Uh, and and the more I was feeling that pressure not to make any mistakes. Whereas now I've sort of tried to wind the clocks back a little bit and say, look, this is what I'm dealing with. This is who I am. Uh, you know, I've made some mistakes in my past. I've been a bit uh, probably aggressive in certain areas. And, uh, you know, yeah, I have regrets in that in that respect. Um, but all you can do is, is sort of hold your hands up uh, to past mistakes, try and improve and change and, and move forward. And I think by talking and, and speaking out, it's, it's given me the best opportunity to do that because certainly in the last few months, the pressure I built up uh, because, you know, one, one thing I won't uh, labor the point too much, but because I'd, spoken want, out, because I'd spoken out uh, a few years ago and, uh, you know, in quite graphic detail about the OCD and everything over time, the more interviews you give and, and the more you speak to people, the more charities and whatever it may be, want to speak to success stories. Uh, they generally don't want to speak to people who are in yes. the middle of a crisis the survivor I, word. Exactly, yeah. And and I felt a massive pressure with that uh, to not admit that I'd fallen down again. And I mean, as, as uh, late as last October, I'd headlined Time to Change Wales uh, World Mental Health Day. And I spoke as like a, a reformed, uh, cured person almost. But at that time, I mean, I was suicidal at that point in mm. time. I was I was gone, as I, as I mentioned earlier. Um, but I just didn't want to admit it outside of my own my own bubble. Whereas now the decks have, have sort of been wiped clear and I think people know what's gone on. And, and certainly for, for myself, I think that's, that's helped me to just say, look, here's where I am. You may not get the best out of me for, um, for, for the moment, but I'm working on it. And, you know, the, the support I've had off people I've never even met has just been incredible. And, and the chance to, to come on this program is, is something I'm really grateful for because, uh, you know, it shows that people like yourself are, are open to having these conversations. And, and I think these are the most important things. You know, people coming on, sharing their experiences, and hopefully it will just encourage someone else to take that step to to get on the road to recovery, recovery themselves. And I think we'll all say amen to that, Ben. Thanks very much. If you want to find Ben, um, just tell people what your Twitter handle is, Ben. Uh, best place to find me is uh, Ben Jeffries on Twitter. And, uh, Jeffries with an, e, with an E-Y, isn't it? Not an I-E. Uh, J-E-F-F-R-E-Y-S. Yeah. Um, and your podcast, your blog is the Mindfield Podcast, but obviously they'll find the links to the Twitter, won't they, I guess? so. Yeah, it's on my uh, on my Twitter profile. 
Yeah, so go and uh, have a read of Ben's stuff. Not just because of the, the mental health stuff's incredible, but actually I've learned, I've probably learned most of what I know about the inner workings of of how a small club tries to cope with all this stuff in Wales through reading your post that I do with anything else because they're snappy and they're informative and it's been great for me. So keep doing that. And, uh, and don't, please go there. Go there, be nice to Ben. Don't do any of that other shit that he's going to put up with. All right? <laughs> Thank you, Ben. Thanks very much. No, thanks for the time. Appreciate it. Sports Social Podcast Network.